0: Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My guest today is David Waring. We spoke about the defence, security and international trade policies of the Labour and Conservative manifestos and what the implications of the election result are for those at the sharp end of British foreign policy. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Haymarket Books, who have lots of left-wing titles that might be of interest to listeners. One that you might like to check out is Marx, Women and Capitalist Social Reproduction by Martha E. Jimenez. This essential volume selects the key essays of renowned Marxist feminist and theorist of social reproduction, Martha E. Jimenez. Grounding her analysis in Marx's theory and methodology, Jimenez examines the relationship between class reproduction and the oppression of women in different contexts, such as the reproduction of labor power, domestic labor, Feminization of Poverty and Reproductive Technologies. She argues that the future of feminist politics is inextricably tied to class politics and the fate of capitalism. The book is available now from Haymarket Books as part of the Historical Materialism series. Haymarket are currently running a holiday sale. Visit haymarketbooks.org to buy titles at a 50% discount. International customers have to pay postage costs from the US, but over the sale period this is still likely to be the cheapest way to buy Haymarket titles. David Waring is a teaching fellow in international relations at Royal Holloway, part of the University of London, where he lectures on US foreign policy and the political economy of the Middle East. He's the author of Anglo-Arabia, Why Gulf Wealth Matters to Britain, which we discussed in episode 36. I began the interview by asking David if he thought there were reasons why British foreign policy has not played a significant role in the election campaign, aside from the Conservative focus on Brexit and the relatively radical nature of Labour's domestic programme.
1: Yeah, I think there's, um, I think that it is what you say, it's those sort of most obvious reasons. Um, Tories really just want to focus on Brexit and um, I've been looking for the, two manifestos, like the introduction to the Tory manifesto, um, paragraphs, paragraphs two, three, four, five, and six all we'll start with the three words, get Brexit done. And it goes on very much in a vein throughout. It's, just, it's a really sort of thin, platitudinous document. Labour, by contrast, the, um, the manifesto is much longer, much more detailed, much more, just more policies, more plans, more thinking clearly has gone into it. Um, it 's it's half policy document half pr document half policy document whereas the um, the Tory manifesto is, 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 is pure um, it 's pure pr and, and and in a very facile way as well and the labor one yeah there 's a lot of focus on the domestic agenda and that 's been true in their campaigning and in their messaging as well in terms of you know what they decide to make a given day about whether it 's pensions or whether it 's broadband they 're always going for domestic stuff and So while the Tories are making the calculation that all they have to do is hoover up the Brexit vote, people who, who A, voted leave, and B, care about leave more than anything else, all they have to do is do that, and they're home and dry. That's clearly their calculation. And the calculation Labour are making is if they want to hoover up the other side of um, of the political spectrum, build their own electoral coalition, they need to focus, they need to have something credible to say on Brexit, but not just pure remain. And they have to have a good kind of retail policy offer for people who've been living through 10 years of austerity, um, 40 years of, you know, barely rising living standards for a lot of people. Um, So it's a domestic policy offer. And it's like, I mean, I can see why, because people have suffered a lot under austerity and, you know, it's it's absolutely right to foreground a lot of the, um, you know, the problems that Britain's facing domestically. But what happens outside of Britain in terms of the policies of the British government, really, really matter. I mean, Britain's a really powerful, important country. We always compare ourselves to other global north powers and compare ourselves to the British Empire and then talk about how, you know, Britain doesn't matter anymore. We'll tell it to people in Yemen who are getting getting bombed by, by, by British arms, British planes flown by British trained pilots. I mean... You know, Britain's it's the sixth richest country in the world. It's um, home to the world's leading financial centre, home to some of the world's biggest corporations. It's a global um, military power, able to project military power on an intercontinental basis. Hardly any country can do that. Um, it's one of the world's leading arms dealers. Got nuclear weapons. Uh, Sit in the Security Council. Um, you know, you, you can say all these things about maybe five states out of 200 in the world system. So the decision we make as to who's going to run this country from December 13th 13th onwards. It's a matter of life or death to people all around the world. And what concerns me, well, I was going to say a little bit, but actually quite a lot about this whole uh, debate, election debate we've been having in the past few weeks, is that we really haven't talked about that. We haven't talked about the life or death implications for people beyond Britain's shores, in terms of the decision we 're going to make on on december the 12th because as socialists, I think we generally take the view or we like to think we take the view that people aren 't just like rational utility maximizers they 're not just self interested um, people you know that, like we don 't just care about our own living standards, important as those are we also care about the lives and well being of other people you know and, and and I think Corbyn has brought in. More of that socialist ethic as opposed to the neoliberal narrow individualistic ethic, and that 's great, but you know in terms of the campaign every day they 've got a different um, policy that they 're foregrounding, trying to grab the news agenda with, whether it 's broadband or pensions or whatever. you know I mean I wish they would um, wish I would foreground some of the foreign policy stuff as well and and trust people to take the view that okay this doesn 't affect me directly, but I care about the people in other parts of the world that it does affect, you know, and um, trust people to, 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 you know, to make decisions beyond their own self-interest because that's, that's a socialist view of what are you, what, what human beings are, isn't it? And, and Britain actually has a, has a long tradition, at least the socialist part of Britain has a long tradition of showing solidarity with people in the global South, including um, people who've been colonized by the British state. We need, we need to perhaps see more of that in Labour's campaigning for grounding those things
0: yeah. And I mean, on, on that, do you think some of the uh, reluctance to make foreign policy more of an issue is related to perhaps a certain lack of combativeness that there's been around the the sort of the weaponizing of, of um Particularly Jeremy Corbyn's past in in um, the you know the Palestine sol- Solidarity Movement and um, his uh, support for the you know, the, the so called Pink Tide in in Latin America and because I think you know particularly from a sort of a, a centrist standpoint and, and one sees this with some of the messaging around the Liberal Democrats and in fact even in the Liberal Democrat manifesto they say something to this effect where um, you know you can sort of look at the Tories and say well that you know they're they they're similar in their in their um, Uh, allegiances to to authoritarian regimes you know johnson's soft on saudi arabia and and uh, corbyn is you know uh, uh, allegedly soft on 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 putin and and uh, you know we say both those positions are 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 wrong and and it's it's obviously a a view which has a lot of appeal to a lot of our journalists i think who whose political instincts do lie in the in the in the center ground broadly
1: yeah, yeah. No, I think that's that's, that's probably fair. I remember reading um, a year or so ago um, that there was a kind of debate within, I don't know if this is true or not, but you know, you read it from, uh, I think it was Stephen Bush who said this actually, so his contacts are fairly good. He said there's a kind of debate in the, uh, within the sort of group around Corbyn and on one side people saying that foreign policy it is not a good area for us for all the reasons you mentioned. So let's just focus on the domestic agenda and other people in that core group saying, "No, actually, he's got a really good story to tell on foreign policy." Like remember, Manchester bombing, twenty seventeen, during the election campaign, all the sort of you know people in the great polit- and the good of the political class saying this is going to be you know damaging for Corbyn because it's going to bring his so-called it's going to bring his attitudes about terrorism to the fore. It's a weakness for him. And then Corbyn came out immediately and said, we have to think about the links between this bombing and British foreign policy. And, you know, it was howls of divisive laughter and are oh, you going to get slaughtered for this in the polls? And then a poll came out a couple of days later saying, overwhelmingly, the public agreed with him and, and most Tory voters agreed with him. And there's, apparently there's a group within that sort of Labour leadership group saying, this actually plays quite well for us. Like, his attitude they divided as extreme by the commentariat and the political class, but they're actually pretty reasonable. And he's been right on a lot of these things. He's been right on Iraq. He's been right on, you know, Israel-Palestine in terms of the way Israel treats Palestinian people, Gaza, and occupied territories. So, and, and people are ready to give him a fair hearing after, you know, a, a really disastrous era in British foreign policy, disastrous for its victims, you know, in Iraq, across the Middle East. Um, people are ready to be receptive to that. Um, so, uh, you know, if that's debates going on, then maybe the people who say should focus on domestic politics have kind of won out. But, you know, I say that when you look at the manifesto, it's a pretty internationalist manifesto. The green New Deal stuff is right at the beginning, and there's a lot of internationalist stuff in there. The so-called defence chapter, defence and security chapter, is, is 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 better than the one from a couple of years ago. Stuff about foreign policy is good. The um, the, the diffid stuff is absolutely great. So there's a there's a, and and there's stuff about imperialism as well. Perhaps we'll get into that. The, the attitude that Labour's taken towards Britain's imperial past, which I think is so important. So you know, on, on the one hand, the way they're marketing themselves to the public. And the messages they want to get in the news are all domestic-focused. But if you look at the manifesto, it's very internationalist, um, which is great. And I think they should bring it to the fore a lot more. And I think they should trust the British people a bit more, you know, to be receptive to to, to these messages. Because I think a lot of them are really, really good.
0: Specifically on the on the manifesto commitments, I saw on Twitter that the uh, the, the historian uh, Mark Curtis was 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 quite critical of the manifesto. I mean, he was saying that when it came to uh, security, it was a, a generally reformist, uh, unlikely to provide a significant break with the past. I mean, I you know I think in terms of the specifics, you know, he's talking about the commitment to maintain spending on the armed forces at two percent of GDP, uh, maintaining support for Trident, uh, the the Commitment to uh, to NATO, but but would that would that not be your reading? Would you sort of see? I agree. I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, is is it specifically sort of on the security section that you think he's perhaps right, but maybe not more broadly in terms of um, the sort of international trade policy, for instance?
1: I mean, you have to take that whole internationalist section. So there's like four um, sort of sub chapters at the back under the heading of new internationalism. One one on foreign pol two on foreign policy. Um, internationalism and diplomacy and then one on defence and security and then one on sort of different issues. And I think you have to take them all together to get the full picture. Um, I think, I mean, you know, Corbyn's, I was about to say running a party, just about running a political party, where there's there's a wide range of of views. Even when you put aside the people who have basically mutinied against him, um, and tried to sabotage his leadership and tried to sabotage the party's chances, there are still people with really divergent views who he's had to bring into the tent and accommodate. And I think particularly on so-called defence you know, he, he he has backed down quite a lot. I mean, we do, I don't think anyone thinks that he really supports NATO, but he's made a concession there. I don't think anyone thinks that he supports 2%, 22% of GDP on the military, but he's he's made a concession there. Obviously, we know that he doesn't support the renewal of Trident, but he's made, made a concession there as well. And just look at my copy of the manifesto <laughs> against all these things I've written, bad, bad, bad. <laughs> so so I, I agree with Mark entirely on on, on, on all those things. Um. I think, you know, I say it's good. It's good overall, Manifesto. I think the, the package as a whole is good. And, you know, you have to accept that it's going to be difficult to change all these things all in one go. Corbyn doesn't even control the party he's supposedly leader of. Um, and, you know, you've got to make these arguments. So,
0: and, and the direction of travel matters right you know it matters that it's yeah, more yeah, yeah, more radical yeah. than the 2017 manifesto um because i mean i don't know if you feel this but I, you know i sometimes feel with with, with certain parts of, of of the left and it, it is particularly the part that i tend to associate with an earlier moment of of, of left activism you know more around the the anti-war mo- movement that there's a, there does seem to be a, a certain kind of um I don't know purity politics going on where where the direction of travel isn't acknowledged. It's just you know this isn't good enough. You know this isn't what what the line should be, and, and it it just doesn't seem to just recognise the fact that you know as you say you know the Labour Party is a big complicated thing in which one has to has to wage uh, struggles, and, and you're not going to have have a sort of pure Corbynite agenda, or or, or or indeed anything more radical than that. You know, in a, in a short space of time.
1: But I think it's right to speak out against this stuff and to speak out vigorously. And it's also right to recognise that Labour Party is a site of contest. And, you know, if you don't win all the battles, you don't throw the whole thing in the bin, you know, Um, but you've got to be in there fighting those battles as well. I think people on the left of, you know, to the left of Corbyn and part of this Corbyn moment, I think we've got to fight our corner as much as the people on the other side of the, of, the, of the Corbyn spectrum have fought their corner. There was a lot of battles going on around the conference in terms of on free movement and in terms of um, the target for the Green New Deal, in terms of you know, the target for getting to um, zero carbon emissions. And people to the left of Corbyn fought like hell in conference and then people to the right of Corbyn in the Clause 5 meeting behind locked doors fought it like hell to dilute that stuff. And, you know, that those people are going to criticise from the right, so we've got to criticise from the left. But when we criticise from the left, it's got to be, like you say, you know, let's not junk the whole thing or, or damn the whole thing because we didn't win all our battles. But we have got to fight those battles. So I think Mark is right to, to talk about that stuff. But, you know, that's in the context of there's a direction of travel, as as, as you put it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that that section on the military is... You know, not what I would want to see on a number of things. I don't think we need to spend 2% of GDP on the military or even 1% of GDP on the military. I mean, if you look, you know, the average industrialized nation, average European nation spends half of that on its military. And frankly, I mean, what are the security threats? What are the, what are the security threats to, to Britain at the moment? It's terrorism. We're not going to get invaded by France. You know, we're not going to get invaded by Russia. <laughs> you know, That's Greece, Brexit but. gets really bad. <laughs> yeah we'd have to and so i mean i don't i don't really see why we need a military the size of which we have. Well, I I see why the state wants it because it's because the state wants to project military power worldwide and hold up a a global system that suits the interests of the British state and British capital. It's got nothing to do with defence. That's why we spend 2% of GDP on the military because we want to police a global capitalist system in the interests of the British state and British capital. Well, the Labour Party today has a completely different agenda so we don't need 2% of GDP in the military or anything like it. So I'm very much against that. I'm against the renewal of Trident. You know, Britain signed up to Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty in the early 70s, and the bargain was that those states that had nuclear weapons would work to disarm completely, while those states that didn't have nuclear weapons would pledge not to, not to acquire them. And the vast, majority, vast, vast vast majority of the world's non-nuclear states have kept their side of the bargain, and we haven't kept ours. Now, what's interesting in, the, in that chapter of the manifesto, um, the paragraph says, Labour supports the renewal of the Trident nuclear deterrent, bad, Labour will also actively lead multilateral efforts under our obligations to the non Proliferation Treaty to create a nuclear-free world. That's the good bit. So I can just about accept – I can't accept renewing Trident at all, actually, but I can, I can accept the overall policy if it's, if, if it's to vigorously pursue Britain's obligations under the NPT, because we're, you know, we're long overdue on that. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think with with that chapter, the defence and security chapter, by the way, a lot of it is thinking about the military in terms of jobs. A lot of it is talking about the way the state treats armed forces personnel as workers, if you like. Like, what's their pay like? What's their pensions like? What's their terms and conditions like? So, yeah. OK, fine. I mean, maybe we should be thinking about transitioning those workers if we're going to describe them as that. into into better forms of employment um, than than, than British militarism. Um, So that's limited, but there it is. And there's another section of this chapter which talks about the the so-called British defence industry. Now, this is worrying. There's no talk of transitioning the British military industry away from the production of arms and to something else, anything else that you could do with those skills and resources,
0: yeah, I mean it's it's described as world leading, and that we need to maintain it, right?
1: Yeah, we don't need to maintain it; we just we need to dismantle it. I mean, Britain has been at the centre of global systems of violence and the reproduction of systems of violence for, for decades, and that needs to stop. You know, I mean, where do these arms go? They go overwhelmingly to you know, half of them go to the go to the Gulf, you know, and they're used for repression. They're used for well, we can talk about that in a bit, but. You know, world leading is not how I describe an industry that's responsible for that level of violence, um, and it's not something to be proud of, and it's something we need to do. We need to tackle. We need to tackle not just the choices of who we sell arms to, on a, on a sort of ad hoc basis, but we need to have a deeper substantive critique of the role that Britain plays in the global structures of violence, and dismantling the, Britain, the British arms industry is really important. And you know, um, campaign against arms trade, for example, have done work on how you can transition the skills and resources of the British arms industry towards the development of renewable technology. Um, And and that's dealing with a real security threat. A real security threat to Britain at this moment is climate change. I mean, there's no state in the world or no non-state actor in the world that poses anything like a threat to human life in this country that climate change does. So that transition needs to be something Labour's thinking about. And I'm, I'm surprised, to be honest, that that's not here. That, um, that 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 did need to be there. You've got a green new deal section, and then you've got a militarism section which talks about just maintaining the British arms industry, and they failed to join the dots on that. So that's pretty um, that's pretty disappointing. But going past that so-called defence section, we can talk about all the stuff that's actually quite good. The diffid section in particular, I think, is really really good, um, and it. It really speaks to who's writing these sections before they go to, you know, before it gets sort of synthesised into the overall document. You can tell that more conservative people have written one section and more sort of radical people have written the other. And on the DFID section, foregrounded right at the beginning, a second paragraph, we recognise the need to address historic injustices and we'll reset our relationships with countries in the global south based on principles of redistribution and equality, not outdated notions of charity, Or imperialist rule. Can you imagine New Labour, who are so associated with that department, DFID, ever writing anything like that? You know, the paternalism of the New Labour aid agenda compared to the, you know, restorative justice, not just justice, but restorative justice and recognising the role of the British Empire historically in creating these current problems is just really, really refreshing.
0: Yeah, I, I I sort of had a uh, an intensified uh, experience of surprise when reading that because I was alternating between uh, two tabs on my computer, one of which was the Conservative <laughs> manifesto, and one was the Labour manifesto. For a moment, I was reading the Conservative one, thinking it was the Labour one. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. When I came to that <laughs> section, I was I was yes a very, a very very surprised. But as you say, even for the Labour Party, it is indeed surprising given the Labour Party's history.
1: Yeah, it's it's it's, it's very very good. In terms of climate change, in particular, climate emergency, lots of stuff here to do with Britain's responsibilities. Labour believes in, I'm quoting, Labour believes in climate change, sorry, Labour believes in climate justice. Wealthy countries like the UK bear the greatest responsibility for the climate emergency. Countries in the global south have done the least to cause climate change, are already facing the worst impacts. We have a duty to right this wrong. And in terms of doing that, providing additional spending on climate finance to help countries adapt. Um, stopping aid spending on fossil fuels, ending, um, ending UK export finance to support for fossil fuel projects. Um, there's some really good stuff in here. When they do, we talk about global tax rules. And, and Britain, this is one of the areas where Britain has a huge um, sort of responsibility if you, in terms of global tax. You know, there's so many of the world's tax havens are British jurisdictions. And this is how the global south gets robbed this is how that kind of kleptocratic aspect of imperialism has, has continued into the modern sort of post, post-formal colonies but still imperialist um, era. And, and that's, that's Labour noting that responsibility, noting how these structures have carried forward and, and trying to address it. There's another bit in here, just going back to arms sales where I talk about putting DFID right in the centre of those decisions about arms exports. Um, who's got, you know... Who, what countries these arms are going to. That's really, really important as well. Um, yeah, and so, so the DFID section is, um, is really, really encouraging. And the, the kind of overall foreign policy section as well, um, right at the beginning, and this is, I'm, I'm sure, something that's raised, well, I know it's raised, eyebrows from a lot of, sort of centrist commentators. So you go into the new internationalism section, that that covers all these different aspects. And literally the first introductory bit, like three paragraphs in, it says this. And this is a policy proposal, a policy commitment. Conduct an audit of the impact of Britain's colonial legacy to understand our contribution to the dynamics of violence and insecurity across regions, previously under British colonial rule, next to which I've just drawn a series of exclamation marks. Again, this is something that's... it's, It's genuinely radical by the state. It shouldn't be radical, It should be absolute common sense, and it says something pretty damning about the state of British politics. It is radical, but it is radical by by the standards of British politics. Obviously, the the Conservatives will say the exact opposite. In fact, if I just grab my copy of the Conservative Manifesto, at the top of their foreign policy section, just beneath the title, we're going to kind of stand first. It says, as Conservatives, we are immensely proud of the UK's history and its standing in the world, unlike those currently leading the Labour Party, we regard our is a force of good ploddy, ploddy, ploddy. there's a huge dividing line there between how you see Britain's history one party with its you know firmly committed to these delusions and fairy tales and lies um, about Britain's role in the world historically and one recognising the need to kind of you know, to rethink all this stuff and in terms of foreign relations I think this is it's so important you know it's not just a academic exercise radically rethinking Britain's relationship with the rest of the world setting it in the context of empire Britain's modern place in the world is a product of its imperial history Britain was an empire for 300 years which only ended the you know, formal imperialism only ended like within our lifetime sort of thing like, like 60s 70s and not within a lifetime many people are alive at the moment and those sort of 300 years of history shape our present Um in all sorts of ways, from racist attitudes to Britain's place in the global sort of hierarchy economically and in terms of state violence. There's no way you can rethink Britain's role in the world today without looking at its imperial history and looking at how we got here. Um, yeah, am just facing up to that. And just the fact that Labour are prepared to do that um, is, is really, really, really important. Um, and And that is not it's not just a little isolated paragraph you can see time and again and i think labor saw a mini manifesto on um race and faith relations today in which they they come back to it again we've got to rethink our imperial history we've got to foreground that we've got to have a conversation about it
0: just on the conservative manifesto for for a moment so um yeah, this won't so long. <laughs> yeah, so um, enough, <laughs> well, no, indeed. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's 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 obviously been uh, heavily criticised for its lack of of, of, of policy and and, and direction. They've obviously opted for a document that's relatively cautious. Notably, they've kicked the decision about social care down the road, um, thinking back to what happened in the 2017 election. I suppose one of the interesting things about it, reg- regarding specifically defence and security, is that in many ways it seems like continuity conservatism. Uh, obviously, the rightward drift of, of the Conservative Party is a real thing. Uh, parallels are often drawn between Boris Johnson and and, and people like Donald Trump, and there's, you know, I think some validity to those comparisons. There obviously the the situations are are very different, and the personalities themselves are, are somewhat different. But you know, we don't see in this document a sort of a shift to a, a notably kind of uh, Trumpian register. There's there's a, a commitment to more or less uh, maintaining things as they are. There's there, there's at least a rhetorical commitment to uh, multilateralism. Do you find this at all surprising? Do you think it's do you think it's genuine? And you know, do you think we might see a shift to uh, something more in line with the kind of Britannian chained group uh, within within the Conservative Party that that, that sees a a, m- a more striking difference between our security policy uh, in the future as compared with the past?
1: Yeah, it's interesting you put it like that. I mean, I think there's a there's a mishmash of, of things going on there. In terms of specific policies, I suppose it is pretty much continuity just by virtue of the fact that they literally have done no thinking.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And I, you know, I mean it's just bullet points and it's just tiny bullet points with like a sentence, a bullet point and a sentence. Yeah. They've got they've got no plan for anything at all. They've got nothing. Um it's, it's, it's a party that's just, you know, it's it's had its ten years in government, it's just knackered. So on, on on that score, I guess it's sort of continuity, and it's small. It's it's conservative in, this, in, in that sense, that sort of um, conventional sense of the term. But there's also elements of, of right-wing populism in there as well. But it's done in a more British register, you know, it's a, a Trumpish sort of, a Trumpian sort of register isn't going to work here, I guess. But there's a lot of, I mean, the, one of the main elements of Tory populism today is one of reaction to, to Corbyn and reaction to Labour. And casting Corbyn and Labour as illegitimate actors in the political system, as threats to Britain, um, beyond the pale and all the rest of it, you know, portraying Corbyn as a traitor, as in League of Our Enemies and all the rest of it. And that is very much there. Um, so if you look in the and, and and the lying, which has become just so, um, we'll put Liberal Democrats to one side, but you know, just thinking about Tory lying is, is is a big theme of this campaign. Just is really blatant, and that's that's very Trumpian. That kind of you can lie and get away with it. You know, the, the media won't hold you to account. You know, you can do it. Um, so in the introduction, Jeremy Corbyn is prepared to break up the UK and disband our armed forces. <laughs> It's just literally made up. It's just absolutely made up. Jeremy Corbyn's is prepared to break up the UK and disband the armed forces. It's a straightforward lie. And we can, you know, look at the Labour manifesto that says Labour's committed to spend 2% of GDP on the military. That's, you know, Britain's going to have under Corbyn, after the end of five years of Corbyn, Britain will be spending pretty much twice as much by proportion of GDP on the military as... Um, as most European countries, so it's an absolute falsehood.
0: I mean, as you say, it's it's not accurate in 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 a strict sense. I mean, it, yeah, clearly contra- contradicted by things that Labour politicians have you know the leadership have said and and what's in the manifesto. But yeah. uh, do you, do you think that the sort of the, the hysteri- sort of the hysterical nature of that criticism, points to something real? And and, and that's the it is the fact that a lot of and I, you know I'd include myself in this. There are there members of the Labour Party who. You know, our, our sort of long-term goal is not, you know, social democracy. That we, you know, there's yeah, a, there's all yeah, okay. of us who, who do sort of uh, take take a, a more um, a more radical stance on 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 security and a whole, a whole range of issues. You know, there are there are yeah. new members of the, of the Labour Party who, formerly before the Corbyn surge, were, were anarchists, uh, communists, you know, various sort of sort of Marxists, and and I wonder if you know, to, in some sense, the Conservatives actually ensure it, uh, you know, a real danger to them.
1: Yes, no, I agree, I agree with that completely. So on the one hand, it's, it's, it's flatly dishonest to say that Corbyn's going to disband the military. And I think, you know, even if, it, you know, say, say Labour wins and they have five years and it goes well when they win another five years, I think even at the end of 10 years, the, the military is not going to be disbanded. So it is hysterical and it is a lie. Yeah. That being said, <laughs> it is also true that, you know, people like you and me are involved in this, and 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 if you look at Corb- the Corbyn moment as a, like sociological phenomena, for want of a better word, look at what this movement is. Look at where the energy in this movement comes from. It comes from you know younger end of Generation X and millennials who are diverse who are, you know, more likely to be from sort of diverse backgrounds, including, you know, parents and grandparents from the colonies, who are sort of, in their, in their life experience, they've seen neoliberalism fail, they've seen British militarism be a completely, you know, not, not fail from the point of view of the people who designed it, but, you know, be damaging from the point of view of the average person, certainly from their point of view. They've seen militarism play out in really destructive ways for the war on terror. Um, you've got a generation coming through with no, with the opposite of respect for the status quo. You know, with contempt for the status quo on economic and um, foreign policy terms, and in terms of British uh, militarism. And that's what's coming. You know, behind Corbyn, that's what's coming. So there's a longer-term threat for sure. If you're a conservative, to the status quo, absolutely. When you look at the, the, the attitudes of young, of, of the people in the younger people in this movement. And yeah, I mean, if their sense is that if we don't stamp this out now, and if this grows, if this movement is successful, then in twenty, thirty years' time, we could be living in a radically different country. That 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 sense and that fear is absolutely right. I think that is what we that is what we threaten, you know, from their point of view, and they're they're, they're right to be worried about that. That that perhaps is what's behind the hysteria. But as things currently stand, it's still you know it's still hysteria. It's it and. And, and perhaps that's good from the point of view of Labour, you know, if you want to win, having your opponents behave in a palpably hysterical, nonsensical, um, dishonest kind of way, perhaps that's, that's, you know, perhaps that's good from your point of view.
0: You spoke earlier about the fact that the, the election for people abroad and, and uh, you know, regarding conflicts that Britain is involved in and, and, and supporting that this is, you know, a, a matter of life and death for, for some people. So could you, could you yeah, speak yeah. about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've been talking about it as though it's a Brexit election of or, or the political class has tried to talk about it as though it's a Brexit election. And people keep saying it's the most important issue facing the country. And it's just, you know, it, it's such a parochial attitude. It's fundamentally untrue. If we're going to measure what the most important issues of the day are, let's measure them by virtue of the impact on human life. The biggest issue facing us today is climate change. And we know for, you know, science is, science is telling us that we've got, was it, 11 years? We've got till 2030. Um, if we don't turn it around, the whole thing's going to run away from us in terms of the temperature rise. And then we're going to see, we've already seen nasty outcomes, you know, at, at the moment. But we're going to get to civilizational collapse level by the end of the century. And, you know, kids today... Children, you know, within our lives, it, like, you know, I dread to think in terms of my own godchildren, what are they are going to live through when they're old? And that's what's at stake. We've got 10 years to deal with it. And then we're choosing the government for the next five years. It's absolutely crucial we get it right. Sixth richest country in the world, home to the world's leading financial center, major corporations, I hope based in the U.K., what Britain does within the global economy in terms of dealing with climate change really, really, really matters a lot. And one of the points made in the Labour manifesto is that if they get this right, the Green New Deal, it can be a, you know, an exemplar, an example to to the rest of the world. This is how you, this is how you transition while maintaining social justice and t- making sure that the impacts of the transition don't fall on, on, um, on, on working class and, and middle class in your society. So it's so important that like, lives are at stake um, at, at, to to a degree that's incalculable in terms of climate change. And the difference between Labour's target of net zero in the 21st is the Tories' target of 2050 is big enough. But when you consider the fact that nothing the Tories are proposing to do is going to get us there by 2050, this is existential, you know. Um, if, I don't think we should boil an election down to any one thing <laughs> except for climate change, Well, we kind of should. You know, there's there's no option here. You know, there's no choice. Um and, and the other thing is Yemen. You know, I would, I would say the second most important thing is Yemen. Um, Brexit is really important, but there aren't really lives at, at stake, at, at least not in the sense that there is with Yemen, where, you know, we've spoken about it before, but the, the Saudi war in Yemen has killed tens of thousands of people. The Saudi-UAE blockade of Yemen, um, say the children say that 85,000 infant children in Yemen have died as a result of starvation and preventable disease. Um, and the, as a, in a man-made humanitarian catastrophe, That the Saudis and the UAE are fundamentally are the prime culprits of 85,000 infant children. And that war is facilitated by British arms sales. You know, the Saudis could not what The Saudi aerial power, Saudi bombing, is a major component of the war. And those planes don't fly without British support because there's a British made planes which need British components, British trainers, British um, engineers to maintain them, British supplied bombs and missiles. Britain's implicated in the world's worst humanitarian disaster. And the Tory policy is to continue facilitating that humanitarian disaster, continue continue facilitating the indiscriminate bombing of Yemen and this brutal blockade. And uh, the Labour policy is to end that. And these, these are such huge dividing lines where you can see clearly, you know, people live and die in these margins on, on, on an enormous scale, on an incalculable scale. So I really urge people, it's not just a question of your vote. It's a question also of doing everything you can to make sure that these decisions work out in the right way on, on December the 12th. They really are lives at stake. And it's something we need to talk about more generally as a movement in the coming couple of weeks. We can't just focus on domestic scene. The international scene is so important.
0: You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you've been enjoying this show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening.